Okay. I'm here with Courtney. Um, Courtney, if you could like introduce yourself and just tell me a bit like who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, my name is Courtney. I am a what am I? <laughs> I am an associate clinical social worker with a master's degree in children, family, social work with a subconcentration in military social work. I got my MSW from USC and my bachelor's in social work from Cal State Long Beach. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is like why you decided to be a social worker and like what drove you there and if there was like a journey that like caused you to get there. Sure. Uh, when I was about 15 years old, I actually had social workers come into my house as part of a report that was made against some of my family members. And the social workers were really helpful to me. They were the first people to tell me that what was going on in my life was not right and was not okay. And that it was okay that it was bothering me. And I always knew I wanted to help people. My family is a huge line of helpers. Yeah. My dad's a firefighter. My grandpa's a firefighter. It was kind of expected that I would be in some kind of helping profession. And I definitely wanted to, but I didn't know how that would look. So I really wanted to be a social worker because of the flexibility that you get with a social work degree. You can go into children and family work. You can do investigations. You can do advocacy work. You can write bills. You can do macro work, you can do mezzo work, which is working with organizations. You can do individual work, which is what I chose to do throughout my education. I found that individual therapy was definitely my niche. It was where I feel the most beneficial and I feel like I can be the most helpful. Okay, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, I like I know like what social workers do, but like could you go into like a little bit more about like what it looks like on a daily basis kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. So there's three different levels of social work. There's micro social work, meso social work, and macro social work. So macro social workers are the ones who are writing bills. They're working to change laws. They're doing that big picture work. They're doing a lot of grant writing. Mm -hmm. Then there's uh, meso social work. They are the ones who work with organizations. They do a little bit more middle level work. So you can kind of see macro, micro, yeah, yeah. and meso. And then there's micro social workers. So that's what I do. So there's a few different ways that you can go about that. I chose to go with the therapy route. Uh, so right now I do individual therapy. I run group therapy. In the past, I've done work with children, adolescents who were involved in either the foster care system or on probation. Then there's the in home investigators. So they're the ones who follow up on reports. They go out into the home. They make sure everything is safe. They work with the kids who are removed. If they are removed, they'll follow that kid through every placement they have. And that's one great thing about uh, our county is we keep the social worker with the kid. So the kid doesn't have to get to know a new social yeah. worker every time they move. Yeah. Then there are hospice social workers. There are medical social workers. So they work in the medical field. They will help uh, clients advocate for themselves and really understand what their options are when they're going through medical concerns. Or they'll be the ones who find them the resources. Uh, if they need hospice, if they need... Uh, medical supplies, if they need wheelchairs, if they need lifts, if they need hospital beds, they help them navigate those systems. Social workers do a lot. Yeah. There's military social workers, which is when social workers actually go out, they either go deploy, uh, they can actually deploy okay. out to 
combat zones and provide therapy and comfort to people who have actually just been through huge traumas, right? They've been in situations, they've been in combat, so they're able to do that. Some of them are stationed on base where they work with the soldier and their families, so they get that kind of attitude, or not attitude, they get that kind of experience with it. Um, Let's see, that's military social work. There's geriatric social work, Um, so that is when people are aging. It is... Helping them through those last stages of life, again, navigating those medical systems, but also helping them make wills, just understanding what they're going through. And that's a lot of them, but there's, I'm sure there's more. Social workers can really do just about anything. Yeah. So for you, you specialize in like the therapy aspect and like helping them with like the transition of like getting into foster care and that kind of thing. So when I was working with foster youth, they were already in foster care. Okay. So they had to have already been in foster care to get, um qualify for my services I was part of a wraparound and IFCCS team meaning we had a case manager a therapist that was me Mm -hmm. a rehab specialist the rehab specialist worked strictly on behaviors with the kids and then we also had a parent partner who helped navigate with both the biological parents and the foster parents so that we could really provide a team-based approach for these kids so that we could support them as much as we could again we traveled with them so I had kids all over LA County they would start it was dirt near Compton, that area. Yeah. And I had clients all the way out in Lancaster. So okay. I would drive out there once a week to provide therapy yeah. to them. Yeah. And so they had to, they had to already have a probation case or be in foster care and show a lot of behavioral concerns to qualify for our services. Okay. And then once they turned 18, would that be like turned to the state or would you still stay with them? It really depends. Um, but they have the options. They have a few different options. Technically, they could stay under my care until they were 21. Their okay. 21st birthday, they could no longer stay with me. Okay. But they also had the option to go into transitional age youth programs, which are, they get assigned a new therapist mm-hmm. or a new social worker who will help them navigate those growing concerns, applying for college, getting housing, things like that. Yeah. And they actually qualify to live in transitional age youth house, housing. Okay. So they basically get an apartment, a roommate. There's a lot of strict rules that they have to follow. Okay. But they can do that, too. All right. That makes sense. And then um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, like, the different, like, ages that you would talk to and, like, how that would differ and, like, the transitions. And I know, like, every kid is very different. But, like, what were some, like, overlying things that you saw over and over again? Sure. So with the younger kids, it's a lot of explaining things. Okay. Uh, You can understand when you're five years old and you're taken out of your biological parents' care, you don't understand why. Yeah. You don't understand that what has been going on in your home isn't safe. So a lot of them, what I had to do was explain what was going on and also explain what emotions were. Mm -hmm. And that was the big part of my job is helping kids understand these big feelings. Because these are little kids having way bigger experiences than they should ever have to. 100%. So I did a lot of manipulative. So I had Play-Doh, art supplies, Bubbles, balloons, if you could come up with a way to use it therapeutically, I had it. Yeah. So we would teach kids about anger using balloons. So if you blow into a balloon, there's a finite space. And that's the same thing as when we feel anger. We can only hold on to so much of it before we pop. So we teach kids that if you pinch the balloon and let out a little bit of air, it's kind of like allowing yourself to express anger in a healthy way. 
you can take on more stresses. So yeah. we teach them with that. We teach them that it's okay to smash Play-Doh. It's not okay to smash anybody else. <laughs> we teach them that it's okay to rip paper. We teach them that it's okay to scream into a pillow. We teach them it's okay to hit a pillow. It's yeah. not okay to hit anybody else. So we teach them those little things. When they get older, we help them navigate people asking them questions, potentially having court cases with their family where they have to go pick, maybe testify. They have to have... Uh, supervised visits with their family members. Little kids, they don't understand supervised visits. They just know that they get to see that family member if yeah. they want to. Yeah. Older kids, they get frustrated. They mm-hmm. say, why do I have to have a social worker on this visit? Why can't I just go see my mom? So we help them navigate that. We help them navigate bullying at school. We help them navigate physical aggression. Some of my kiddos, I help navigate puberty. Yeah. Uh, I had to buy tampons for some of my yeah. kids, which is an experience that you don't think about when you sign up to be a therapist. I never thought I was going to be buying tampons or fake eyelashes. (laughs) Uh, Some of my older kids, we had to kind of incentivize them to talk because they've been taught that they don't matter. They don't value or they don't have value. So we kind of teach them that they do. Some of them, they have to be incentivized. I had one kiddo who would not do therapy until one day I figured out he loved McChickens. And so I would show up for therapy with three McChickens. Oh, my goodness. And he started talking to me. Yeah. And he was like, okay. This is the same kid that threw a computer mouse at my head a couple weeks before. Wow. He missed. <laughs> uh, but he did not want to work with me. I worked with him for almost a year. In that time, he had... He probably had about seven or eight foster placements. Wow. He was bounced so fast. Some of them, he was there less than 24 hours. So he really did not trust anybody. Yeah. And this kid had been through a lot of trauma. He had been raised in North Carolina. Then his mom sent him out for the summer to live with his dad and didn't come pick him up. He was basically left there. And then mom came out later, moved in with dad and his sister. And there was a lot of domestic violence in the home. Then he was removed. He was placed in a foster placement. He didn't understand why. He didn't understand why he couldn't live with his brother. Mm -hmm. His brother was over the age of 18 and could have taken him, but he didn't understand why he couldn't go there. So he didn't understand a lot. He was 10 years old, so he was really struggling. He was a kiddo who was getting into fights at school. He had been experienced to sex work, and Mm -hmm. he made sexual advances to other girls in his school. And Mm -hmm. he's 10 years old. He doesn't know what that means. Yeah. So we had to explain to him that that's not appropriate and why it's not appropriate. And there's a fine line of navigating that because we had to explain that that's not appropriate, but that doesn't mean your dad's a bad guy Yeah. because he had experienced that from his dad Yeah. and from his mom. So we had to show him what boundaries are while not bashing parents. That's yeah. the first thing you learn is that if you bash their parents, these kids will stand up for their parents no matter what. Yeah. They may have been through hell because of their parents. Their parents may have been physically, emotionally, sexually abusive to them, and they will stand up for their parents. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. But, um, like, as someone like me who's, like, aspiring to, like, be a therapist or work in something that's similar to you, it's like, I know I haven't experienced a lot of the things that these kids are experiencing. So how do you connect to them and, like, try to understand while also, like, being helpful, because I feel like there is a lot of, like, disconnect when it comes to that. Yeah, part of that you learn through internships. So in your undergraduate program or your graduate program, you do internships. And then I'm an associate level. I'm not a licensed level. Yeah. So you learn as you grow, and you continue to work through it. But part of it is acknowledging that, no, I haven't been through what you've Mm -hmm. been through. 
because you may have been through a lot. Yeah. And that's one thing that we learn is you may have been through hell, but your hell is different than somebody else's hell. So nine times out of 10, I haven't been through what these kids have been through. Yeah. Or you feel different about it, even if you did go through that. Exactly. So you sit there with them and you say, you know what? You're right. That's your experience. Teach me about it. You are the one who knows what you've been through. I'm here to help you through it, but I haven't been through it. You're absolutely right. And you let those kids feel that feeling of, okay, this person isn't going to try to tell me what to do. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing with therapy. And that is what frustrates caregivers a lot is I don't tell kids what to do. Yeah. I'll help them figure out what their options are. Say, okay, so let's say you did get into a fight at school. What are your options? What's going to happen? What's the consequences? Okay. Do you want to do that again? Yeah. So if these kids didn't have access to therapy, like what would you think would help them or like be a way for them to cope that like might be helpful maybe not in the way that therapy would be but like would assist them in any way any way emotionally or physically or whatever it might be so I'm a big advocate for teaching emotional health yeah and I actually developed a program for it in my graduate studies I developed a curriculum for teaching elementary age kids about emotions Mm -hmm. Because what we expect and what we expect when we come from decent homes, healthy homes, whatever you want to call it, we expect that parents teach uh, the kids these things. And if you come from a healthy home, yes, your parents did teach you about health. They taught you about mental health. They taught you about feelings. Mm -hmm. But these kids who don't have that, they're not taught that. So if if we were able to incorporate this stuff into elementary, kindergarten, in a healthy way, right? Yeah. We're not teaching them about abuse. Yeah. But we're teaching them about mad. My balloon mm-hmm. example. You mm-hmm. can teach that to a high school or right. high school to an elementary yeah. school kid, no problem. So if we were able to incorporate that into school, because every kid in California has to go to some form of school. Yeah. So if we incorporate this into our curriculum, we can teach kids about emotions. Mm-hmm. So that way if they do go through big things, they have a tool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um and then I think I cut you off a little bit about the different ages and then that. So if you yeah. could continue on yeah. that, just getting older. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I've worked with as young as four and as old as 67. Wow. So it's very <laughs> yeah. different who you're working with. Uh, adolescents, again, you're helping them through puberty. You're mm-hmm. helping them through navigating high school. You're teaching them about internet safety, mm-hmm. which is a thing that we didn't realize was going to come up so much. But during COVID, we had to teach them a lot about internet safety. Yeah. So we teach them internet safety. We teach them sexual health. Mm-hmm. We teach them about their sexual options. We teach them about reproductive health. Mm-hmm. We teach them about Planned Parenthood. We teach them about safe sex. We teach them about the emotional connection to sex. Yeah. Um, some of my kids I've had to instruct about appropriate places to masturbate, um, things like that. Um, I've also worked with developmentally delayed youth. So those kids, they had to learn that yes, they are physically teenagers, but emotionally they're about eight years old. So they were going through these physical changes, developing their sex, uh, secondary sex characteristics and all that. And emotionally they didn't know how to handle it. So with teenagers, you navigate that a lot. You navigate sex. It's really a huge part of teenagers. You also navigate phones. You navigate arguments with caregivers, family members, Mm -hmm. teachers. With uh, older adolescents, you're navigating the fact that they are about to age out of the system. Yeah. So that's why it's great that we have this transitional age youth program. But not every kid knows about it. Not every kid knows that if you go into college, they have guardian scholar programs, which help former foster youth. 
they don't know that they still qualify for benefits, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So we help them apply for these benefits. We help them figure out options for their future. We help navigate relationships. Yeah. Older foster youth also have the option. They have the choice of saying whether or not they want to remain in contact with their biological family. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is that. Some of my older youth also uh, get to go to their court cases. So they would get to testify, potentially. They had the consequences of testifying sometimes. Um, some of them had cases charged against them. They mm -hmm. were my probation kids, so I had to navigate that with them. Had to navigate substance abuse, gangs, things yeah. like that. Yeah, so how do you, like, for example, like the kids that were on probation, how do you, like, separate what they did to who they are and, like, not let that affect the way that you think of them and, like, talk to them in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So we have a saying, it's, you're not a bad kid, you're a kid who did a bad thing. Yeah. And separating that is hard at times. Mm -hmm. Some of these youth will be violent towards mm -hmm. us. Um, I hadn't had my foster youth be violent towards me, but I did have one of them threaten me. Yeah. Um, I had them do drug deals in front of me. And that's a tricky system to navigate, too, because as a therapist... I'm not allowed to say anything. Yeah. I can't report that to their probation officer. Uh, it's a violation of confidentiality. So I'm sitting here. This kid does a drug deal in front of me. He knows that I'm not allowed to say anything. And we just have to speak to them about respect. Yeah. So a lot of it is they have autonomy and teaching them that they have autonomy. So these kids get to say, no, I don't want to do therapy mm -hmm. today. And letting them say that, letting them say, no, I will not work with you is a big part of it. Separating them from what they've done comes with practice. Yeah. Uh, my foster youth, my probation kids, my current clients, my substance abuse clients, my domestic violence clients. Mm -hmm. I have clients who have perpetra perpetrated domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So you have to separate them from what they are. And the idea is all of these things, all of these bad things that people do comes from trauma. And once you realize that, once you realize that these are not bad people, they're people who are acting out because of something that happened to them that they didn't learn how to deal with. Once you recognize that and once you're able to separate that from what they've done and go into their history and you realize that these kids who are gang youth, well, they didn't have family structure. Mm -hmm. They didn't have uh, often male role models in their lives. They didn't have healthy ways of earning money. Mm -hmm. So they found what they found and they went with it. And gang life, it has completely different rules than yeah. society. So these gang youth, they follow their rules. And once they understand that, and once you understand that, you can navigate that with domestic violence family, uh, individuals. You learn that they were taught domestic violence or they didn't know how to understand emotions. They didn't understand how to deal with anger. So once you realize that, you're able to kind of reframe what they've done. Okay, so you're saying like you break down the past first to understand what they're doing in the present kind of situation? It depends on the person. Okay. Some of the people don't understand that. Mm. In your head, you're often going, okay, what's making this person do these yeah. things? You don't always do that out loud with But the to person. them, it's like more subconscious and they don't really realize it. Yeah, some of them. The ones who have been in therapy longer. The ones who have had more education around the subject. Some of the ones who have seen and understand that they grew up in a domestic violence household a lot of them hold a lot of anger onto themselves. Say, mm -hmm. why do I do this? My dad did this. I hated this. My mom did this. I hated this yeah. when I was growing up. Why am I still doing that? So those people, you can say, yeah, you're right. It's something that you learned. The people who don't understand that they came from a toxic household or this is a trauma response, 
you have to first stop what's going on right now. If I have a gang member who's actively involved in gang activities, I have to stop that before yeah. I can figure out what's the trauma. Uh, if I have a client who's actively engaging in substance use, I have to nip that in the bud because if they're engaging in substance abuse, they have to leave my program. So I'm not able to get into the trauma. Mm -hmm. You also have to figure out if they're stable enough. So I work with a lot of people now who have suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. My suicidal ideation clients, my clients who aren't eating meals, who aren't yeah. bathing, who are engaging in active self-harm, I can't go into their trauma right now. I need to get them stable. I need to get them eating meals. I need to get them showering at least every other day, maybe once a week for some of my clients, that's a push. I need to get them stable so that we can get into the good stuff mm -hmm. because I don't want to do more damage, especially where I work right now. I don't have clients for six months to a year to two years. I have them for shorter periods of time. Okay. We call it like emergency health. Mm -hmm. So we do it like EMTs, right? EMTs are going to patch you up and send you off to the yeah. doctor. I am going to patch these people up and then send them off to a long-term therapist. Okay. So I may touch on the trauma. For some of my clients who have more education, who have been through therapy for longer, I may dive into the trauma. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be what that client is ready for. Okay. So what are, like, some, like, coping mechanisms that you use to, like, help these kids that are really struggling with those, like, intense situations? Sure. With my kids, it's all about manipulatives. Yeah. So it's... I would give them, um, you can buy them at Target, but those like stretchy noodles, mm -hmm. uh, I would give those to them. I would give them stress balls. I would give them Play-Doh. Also teaching them that there's stuff that they can do at any time. So teaching them yoga mm -hmm. is a surprisingly good coping skill, especially for ADHD. Yeah. And a lot of my young people were diagnosed with ADHD. Whether that's accurate or not, because the younger you are, PTSD presents like ADHD. Okay. So... That skill can actually be used, though, to kind of reconnect them to their bodies and help them ground their bodies. We also would give them stuffed animals. So if they were struggling, they can squeeze that stuffed, mm -hmm. stuffed animal as hard as they can. We would give them things like journals. Some of my older kids would journal. So we would teach them about expressing emotions, feeling emotions, what it is in your body that you're feeling. And that was the big key for us, was teaching them about that mind-body connection. Because we do, we hold emotions in our bodies. Yeah. So teaching them how they can get it out of their body, it kind of takes it out of their mind. Yeah. And then for the teens that are like a little bit more like aware, like how would that look for them? Uh, a lot of journaling. Yeah. And identifying people who they can trust. Okay. So for my older youth, we would work with them on who are people in your life who can handle this. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times they're afraid that people in their life aren't going to be able to handle their trauma. So who in your life can handle this? Well, it may be your foster mom. It may be your foster sibling because a lot of foster siblings have been through similar situations. So yeah. if you're both sharing a room, because a lot of them are, and you've been through similar traumas, you can talk to one another. You can talk to your therapist. You can talk to other foster youth at certain events and things like mm -hmm. that. We would connect them with services that they can use. Also, my older kids love to draw. Yeah. A lot of them were art focus uh some of them were music focused so okay. some of my older kids would write raps so really just getting them opportunities and i found that no matter how old you are ripping play-doh in therapy <laughs> is a good time i mean that's true that's yeah definitely true. i've given that to my 50 year olds yeah. and they still get the same reaction that kids get they get to rip it when they're mad they get yeah. to smush it when they're mad 
they get to kind of roll it when they're a little bit more calm. Mm -hmm. So you can really see how it's manifesting too. It's a great tool for a therapist, right? You can see that if they're suddenly ripping it, you know, you've touched on something. If they're calmly rolling it, you may be getting them more calm. Mm -hmm. All right. And then for like the younger and your older youth, like how does their mental health and like what they're going through affect like school life and like how they apply themselves Mm -hmm. and like that kind of situation yeah it's huge yeah you can think about it in a lot of different ways but my 10 year old he went through six or seven different foster homes Mm -hmm. and this was during a pandemic so he did not have any stable schooling he finally got to one place that he was there for about six months and we realized that he was very behind in writing He was 10 years old and he could barely write. So a lot of that stuff gets lost because Mm -hmm. they're changing schools so often. Or another thing is when they have so much behavioral concerns, they're not often in the classroom. They're in the principal's office. They're in the school counselor's office. They're suspended. Mm -hmm. They're kept home. They're going to therapy. They're going to Mm -hmm. court. All of that stuff, they're not in the classroom as much as we want them to be. So it absolutely affects their schooling. It affects their behavior at school too. Mm Mm-hmm. These kids lash out. They've found that to get attention, they have to behave badly. Yeah. A lot of times. A lot of them are extremely defensive or extremely volatile. Their emotions are a exposed nerve. So yeah. any little thing can set them off, can make them emotional, can make them cry, can make them angry. A lot of them have found that crying is weakness. So they don't want to cry, so they'll get angry. Mm-hmm. And they'll lash out. So it really affects their schooling We've found that the kids that we work with, we don't even work on school half the time. Yeah. We don't even address it. If we can get them to sit in the classroom for the whole day, it's a bonus. Okay. So that's why we have uh, individual uh, education plans. We Mm -hmm. have the IEPs, but we also have the 504 plans, which are behavioral. So these are plans that say that this kid is able to get up and pace around in the back of the classroom Mm -hmm. if they need to. They're able to go to a trusted school official. A lot of them... Uh, gravitate towards the janitors yeah and they identify somebody at that school who they feel safe with and so they're allowed to leave the classroom and go there if they need to and we teach them that that's okay it's great in fact if they can identify that in themselves and leave and go to that place instead of throwing desks throwing books yeah yelling at the teacher it's fantastic it's a skill it's a bonus I would actually give some of my kids rewards for being able to use that yeah 100 percent um how do you think that, um, what was I going to ask? I th- like hopelessness kind of goes into it because I know a lot of these kids like feel hopeless and lonely and upset. So how do you help them navigate through that and like understand that they, they don't need to feel hopeless and they don't need to feel lonely? Like how do you navigate that? Part of it is validating it. Okay. So letting them feel hopeless and feel lonely. A lot of times people in their lives are telling them, no, you shouldn't feel lonelier and you have a foster mom, you Mm -hmm. have this person, but it's a stranger a lot of times. Sometimes it's a family member, but sometimes it's a stranger. So they get to feel lonely. They get to miss their biological parents, no Mm -hmm. matter what their bio parents have done, no matter what the system was that they were growing up in. They get to miss that because that was home. Mm -hmm. Home is what they knew. So now they're in somewhere strange. So they get to miss it. They get to feel lonely. They get to feel hopeless. We let them feel it. And then we come up with new ways to form connections, new ways to feel hope. Okay, I don't have the hope that I'm going to go back to my biological parents. Sometimes that is where we're at. Sometimes those kids have that hope. 
Sometimes they don't. So, okay, that's not my goal anymore. What is a new goal? What is a goal that I can actually achieve? A lot of our youth, it's graduating high school. Mm -hmm. Some of them, it's getting off probation. Some of them, their goal was for therapy not to be needed anymore. So some of my kids, their goal was to never see me again. Mm. And part of it, you have to take that not personally. It means that they don't want these systems involved in their life. They just want to be able to live like a normal kid. So we teach them that that's okay. We teach them that that is a goal that they can accomplish. Sometimes we use really short-term goals. We use goals that are, I want to go the entire week without getting kicked out of class. Yeah. I want to go a day without getting into a fight. Okay, great. Once they achieve those small goals, we can start to build on those bigger goals. And we do. We help them identify short-term goals and then long-term goals. And the long-term goals can be getting married and having kids one day. It can be graduating from college. It can be going to college. It can be moving away. It's really individualized, but teaching them with the little goals first. That makes a lot of sense. And then going back to the school topic a little bit, um, how do you think or how do you see like the school system specifically in California like could improve and how could that affect and benefit the kids that you see? So a lot of times schools, rightfully so, are focused on education. Mm -hmm. They see that these kids are disrupting the classroom, so the kid gets labeled as a bad kid. Yeah. If teachers and if staff were more informed on what these kiddos are going through, I think it would help them a lot. If you understand that a kiddo is freshly in a new foster placement, doesn't have a bed yet, is Mm -hmm. sleeping on the couch, and they're wearing the same clothes to school every day because they don't have any other clothes. Yeah. Okay, you're going to be a lot more understanding. Uh, When I was in my graduate school internship, we had a little six-year-old who was getting in trouble for falling asleep in class every day, and he was getting sent to the nurse's office. Mm -hmm. We figured out that he was falling asleep every day because he was staying up late to watch his baby sister because mom was going out. So he was in charge of a one-year-old from about 11 o'clock until 5 o'clock in the morning when mom would come home. Mm -hmm. So we basically had to give up on school for him. We taught him that, you know, it's okay. You get to go to sleep. He got to leave class and stop getting in trouble and going to the nurse's office. Mm -hmm. So really understanding what these kids are going through really helps. Also, um, schools are a resource Mm -hmm. for these kids. A lot of these kids, the only thing they eat is at school. So some of the schools understand that. Some of the school staff understand that. A lot of teachers, a lot of elementary school teachers are doing amazing work Mm -hmm. with these kids. They will bring in extra snacks for this kid, knowing that this kid only eats at school. So Mm -hmm. they'll bring them fruit. They'll bring them energy bars or things like that that they can take home, too, so that way they get to eat something at home. Yeah. And sometimes they do that for their other siblings, too, because we know that a 10-year-old, 5-year-old sibling set also has a 2-year-old sibling at home. Yeah. So if the 10-year-old and the 5-year-old are only eating at school... What's that two-year-old eating? Yeah. So a lot of times the schools will make it so that that sibling gets to bring home extra food. Yeah. Uh, so understanding that. But also one thing that schools have started doing, some schools have a foster youth closet. So they'll have school supplies. They'll have clothes that these kids can use if they need it. Um, understanding that the kid who goes through six different foster placements, they often only have a suitcase or yeah. a trash bag. And yeah. as sad as it is, the stereotype is real. These kids are moving with trash bags. So they have a trash bag that's got all of their belongings, their stuffed animals, all of their clothes, their toiletries, if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. They get to take that stuff with them. A lot of times they don't. Sometimes they're removed in the middle of the night and they have the clothes on their back. Yes, the Department of Children and Family Services is required to provide them with a clothing stipend. Mm -hmm. 
However, it's bureaucracy, so sometimes that take month that takes months. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the foster parents don't put it where it needs to go. They don't give the kids clothes. They'll have two or three outfits that they rotate. And we understand kids. We know that that's embarrassing for mm-hmm. them, right? They're showing up in stained or dirty clothes. Sometimes they smell bad. It's yeah. embarrassing. The other kids tease them. So giving the school encouragement to have these resources that foster youth can use and sometimes having the foster youth be able to go in there and just take it without having to say, I need it mm-hmm. because they have a lot of pride and they don't want to ask for things. But having those options of having clothes that they can use, toiletries, I've seen that too, where uh, schools will provide toothbrush, toothpaste, hairbrush. Yeah. That's huge. Um, that was one thing that we did in my previous job was we had a warehouse full of diapers, hairbrushes, uh, school books, um, notepads, pens, clothes, yeah, little kid toys for our littles, but... The bigger kids, we had clothes. That was the biggest thing. Clothes and toiletries. Being mm-hmm. able to pick out their own shampoo was so empowering for yeah, them. Yeah, the little things a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I wanted to ask you, like, have you had any, like, interesting cases that, like, really affected you personally or, like, were super interesting to you or just affected you in a certain way? Sure. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so I have had one of my current at my current job, mm-hmm. I actually had an older male who came to me after hospitalization after he attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of shame and embarrassment around this. He was a gay man. He was living with his partner. His mom had recently died and he had been caring for his mom. Mm-hmm. He was involved in a court case between him and his siblings where he had been caring for mom, living in mom's house for years. Siblings weren't really involved. Siblings wanted to contest the will. And he had expressed to them that he was really struggling. They didn't react in the way that he needed. So he actually wound up attempting suicide, being Mm -hmm. hospitalized, and then coming to me. And he had a lot of shame around that. So he was crying in sessions. Anytime the suicide topic came up, he would physically get so agitated. He would almost feel the need to either throw up or leave my session. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we came to the place where... I gave him a little bit of self-disclosure. I shared that I actually struggled with suicidal ideation when mm-hmm. I was younger. I showed him a tattoo that I have, mm-hmm. um, and I introduced him to Project Semicolon. Mm-hmm. So Project Semicolon is all about destigmatizing suicide yeah. and increasing talking about it because talking about these things, decreasing that stigma, it's huge. So I introduced him to Project Semicolon, and he left my session, and I gave him the assignment of looking for semicolons. Mm-hmm. And he came back the next week and he goes, Courtney, I saw some. I saw semicolons. They were all over the place. I go, well, how did that feel? He goes, that felt great. I felt like I knew them already. And so after that, he was able to talk to me about suicide. He was able to talk to his partner about it. He was able to talk to his daughter about it. Mm -hmm. So he was one that really touched me. I worked with him for a while. And I was actually able to do some um, EMDR processing trauma with a fear that he had around driving. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that that fear of driving came from his suicide attempt. It came from leaving and potentially abandoning the person who he had vowed to take care of, which was his partner. And he felt that he couldn't take care of him anymore. So when his partner was in the car with him, he felt like he was going to crash. Um, So he really touched me. I also have had a few of my foster youth. A lot of them have really stuck with me. Um, one of my older youth, uh, he was a six foot seven tall African-American man mm-hmm. who was living on the streets. He uh, was 20, he was 20 years old when mm-hmm. I got him. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
he was a very amusing man. Um, so he, his nickname was Seven because he's six foot seven. Yeah. And he was living um, down in Venice. And so he would take me for walks on the beach. And that was where he wanted to do his therapy. He did not want to do his therapy anywhere with walls. So we'd go for walks on Venice Beach and people would go by and go, hey, Seven! (laughs) And he was known by everybody. And so when you first looked at this man, you know, he's six foot seven. He's large. Mm -hmm. He's tall. He's rather intimidating looking. He's got face tattoos. Um, He's got a lot of scars. And when I first picked up this case, he came to me because he had a charge on him for brandishing a machete mm-hmm. uh, in a REI clothing store when he was trying to steal a tent. And we found out that he needed somewhere to sleep. So he yeah. was trying to steal a tent. Yeah. The machete was something that he kept on him for safety because he was living on the streets. Mm-hmm. So when I first got the case, I was a little bit intimidated, yeah. right? Looking at this man, I know he's got schizophrenia. He's paranoid. He's been violent before. He's tall. I'm rather short. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I'm five foot four. He's six foot seven. He's got <laughs> over a foot on yes. him. And I was rather nervous when I first met with him, especially because he was living in a home that was not safe. Mm-hmm. And he was really agitated by being in this house. So he would scream and he'd cuss me out and all this stuff. And then when we got to the beach and we he got to actually a homeless shelter, which felt safer to him than being in that home did. He was walking down Venice Beach, smiling, talking <laughs> to all these people. He was telling me about how therapeutic just going to the beach was for him. Just going and sitting on the beach was his therapy. Yeah. So we'd walk down the beach and do therapy on the beach. And he got so much more relaxed and so much more comfortable. We were also able to get him on intramuscular uh, medication. So with people who are living on the streets or people who have schizophrenia, medication is a real struggle. Because you have to find the exact right medication combo. Okay. And if they're living on the streets, they don't know... They don't have access to pharmacies. They don't have access to carrying around pills, to clocks to take that medication Mm -hmm. every day when needed. So intramuscular is actually a shot that they can get injected every three months. Okay. And then they're medicated for three months. And you're able to stabilize them. You're able to get them these resources. Because if you walk into uh, social services with a man who's screaming at the voices in his head, he's not going to get those services because they're scared of him because mm-hmm. he's six foot tall yeah six foot seven <laughs> and he's a little intimidating looking yeah. but once we were able to get him those medications he was able to have a conversation with me which was huge he was still dealing with hallucinations delusions yeah. paranoia but they were manageable yeah so he really stuck with me on just checking my own biases mm-hmm. um that's one thing that you'll learn is that you always have to check your biases no matter how good you think you are at being detached from your own past, your own history, you're always going to find somebody that ticks some box in the back of your brain. Yeah. You're either going to connect with them, you're going to connect them with somebody who you mesh with, who you don't mesh with, who you've had trauma with, who you haven't had trauma with. They're going to remind you of your high school English teacher or something like that. So you're always going to have to check that. And also working in substance abuse Mm -hmm. right now, I had different stigmas that I didn't realize about different medications. Okay. So I had to check that. I had to realize that when I was looking at alcohol, I was like, okay, yeah, alcoholics, blah, blah, blah. Uh, marijuana use. Okay, it's legal. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, heroin. And that was a little scary to me because it, I don't like needles. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I had to kind of check that. Yeah. Um, so checking my biases, that client, six foot seven, he taught me a lot. Um, as far as my younger kiddos, they all kind of stuck with me. Um, 
when you see little kids, they just check a box in your heart yeah. often. Um, that little kid who I told you about who was sleeping in the nurse's office yeah. every day, I wanted to take him home. I was going to ask about that. Like, how do you not want to be like, I want to be a foster parent and take this kid in? Like, I feel like you would just get so attached to them. Yeah, you do. Um, you, you really do. And part of it is realizing that you can't save them all. Yeah. <laughs> if I could, I would take home half these kids. Yeah. Uh, that little boy, I wanted to take him home so bad. Everybody at the school, all the staff who once we realized what was going on, were all like, oh, I just want to take him yeah. home. And so I wanted to take him home so bad, but that wouldn't be doing him a service. Yeah. As much as I cared for this kid, we needed to set him up with a long-term solution, which mm-hmm. would have ideally been a better foster home. Unfortunately, he did remain in his biological home after I left the program, so I'm not entirely sure what happened to him. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things is not knowing where these kiddos wind up. Yeah. Uh, some of my kiddos I've had um, information on after they've left my care. I'm not allowed to search them out, but yeah. they can search me out. Um, yeah. They can do things like that. I do have to let them go. Uh, it's really hard. I do want to be a foster parent eventually. Mm-hmm. That is something I'd really like to do. Um, and I, I do want to do that, but I also know that if I'm a foster parent to these kids, I can't be their therapist. Yeah. You have to have that professional detachment. So yeah. separating yourself. And for me, it's if I were a foster parent right now, I could have one kid, potentially two based on how much space I have in my house. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do because foster youth require a lot of time. And my work also requires a lot of time. So for me right now, being a therapist is more important to me at this exact moment than being a foster parent. So eventually I'd like to become a foster parent once I get my career a little bit more stabilized. Once I get a little further along in my career, I'd love to be a foster parent. But right now it's not an option for me. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. And I think that that's like a good thing to come to. And um, I wanted to ask you like, how you cope with like these feelings that you get from these sessions because I mean it's heavy conversation that I'm sure a lot like you can relate to or you have felt yourself so it's like how does that not affect you yeah so uh I'm really good at uh checking my emotions during the session yeah I'm able to push them back really well um you know I've had things thrown at me I've been spit on all yeah. of that stuff I'm able to push those feelings back during the session but part of it is letting myself feel it and that's something that we teach our foster youth we teach our clients all the time that it's important to let yourself feel the pain and then as staff sometimes we forget that we need to do that too yeah so I have as you know I have my dog so I come home from a stressful day at work and my little jumping bean is attacking me with love and immediately got a smile because (laughs) because dogs are adorable they are and they are just a great resource but having friends that I can call um obviously I can't tell my friends exactly what happened during my sessions because that would be a violation of my clients trust and confidentiality but I can tell them hey I had a rough day at work I'm really struggling with a client Mm -hmm. you want to go get coffee you want to go get a you want to go get dinner you want to take the dogs to the park having those people that you can relate to and just connect with also um I recommend any therapist go to therapy yeah I don't personally trust a therapist who doesn't go to therapy I think that it's really important to have somebody who you can talk to and that's one thing is I get to talk about my cases in therapy um I get to say everything 
because my therapist is confidential. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not violating my con- my client's confidence. And also staff. So in every agency, you have supervision. Mm-hmm. So as a therapist, I get three hours of supervision a week. Okay. Two hours of group supervision, one hour of individual supervision. So that's where my job is to go in with my struggles and speak with a licensed professional about my clients. Okay. And really express, okay, I'm struggling with this. I'm having counter transfer. Mm-hmm. That's when you uh, connect with something in your own history yeah. with this client. You really have to struggle. That's where you struggle with separating them from you. 100%. So I go in there and I say, okay, I'm having counter transference with this client. Do you have any advice for me? And either my fellow therapist or my supervisor will help me navigate through that. Also, again, it comes with practice, right? Yeah. My first clients, that little boy, I wanted to take him home yeah. so bad. Yeah. Now, with more time under my belt, I understand that there's a thousand of him yeah. that I'm going to work with. So I can't take all of them home. So what can I do to provide them with the yeah. most care is checking my own emotions and making the session about them. That's what you yeah. have to remind yourself. The biggest thing is this is their time, not yours. Yeah. And separating that and understanding that what you're doing is helpful, even if you can't like automatically fix it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you're not going to fix anything. Yeah, exactly. They have to fix it for themselves. Exactly. Um, Just kind of ending it out, I just wanted to see, like, a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are just, like, teenagers or Mm -hmm. just people that don't necessarily have, like, mass amounts of trauma. I think everyone has their amounts of trauma. But, like, what would you say or, like, advise to the people that are struggling and that just overall, just, like, a word of advice or whatever you feel could be helpful? So I think everybody has trauma. That's one thing that I've learned is the worst day of your life, maybe somebody else's Tuesday, but trauma is so relative. Exactly. The worst day of your life is the worst day of your life. Mm -hmm. This thing that you're going through is affecting you how it's affecting you. A lot of times we think that our trauma needs to rank, Mm -hmm. uh, be ranked. Yeah. So because I wasn't uh, physically abused, my emotional abuse doesn't matter. Because I'm not living in a war zone, the family conflict doesn't matter. Because I'm only struggling with my grades or yeah. and, uh, fear about where I'm going to go to college, it doesn't matter because other people are going through so much worse. But that doesn't matter. Yeah. What really matters is what you're going through. That's what's affecting you. So let yourself be upset. Let yourself be traumatized by these things. Yeah. Find people who you can trust and talk about it. Okay. A lot of times, young people, we fi- feel the need to stuff emotions down. Mm-hmm. We don't trust people. We feel like we should be able to handle it. And, you know, that's the thing about teenagers and parents, right? Yeah. Our parents are not always that person who we can go to. Exactly. Because there's family conflict. Family members know how to push your buttons like nobody else. Yes. So find somebody who you can trust. If it's your school counselor, go to them. If it's a friend, go to them. If it's a therapist, go to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Young people are able to sign up for therapy at the age of 14. Yeah. Without their parents' consent. Okay. So sign up for therapy if that's what you feel. But also educate yourself, right? Find a podcast that you can relate to. If you're struggling with um, mental health concerns, find a book, find a podcast, yeah. find an activity, find a group. Find other people because it is so isolating to be a young person. 100%. So find connections and use them. And then how do you think that parents can like be the most helpful? Just like how I see it as just like listening. Because I mean, I've faced my own like mental health issues and a lot of it... I feel like could have been helped if I like had more support like parentally or just like family wise. So would you say that that would be the most helpful? 
Yeah, absolutely. Listening is a huge thing and also understanding. Um, so I had a great lecture that I went to where this woman walked around the room picking up items. Mm-hmm. And the representation of this was that every item she picked up was something that she was going through throughout the day. Okay. So basically, she was pretending to be a teenager, right? Uh-huh. So she's going to school. She's struggling with this. So she picks up an item. Then she picks up another item when her friends aren't being nice to her. Yeah. She's picking up more items. And then she comes in and mom gives her one last item, which is, you know, you need to empty the dishwasher. Okay. And what happens is all the items fall to the floor because you can only take on so much. So for mom, all she saw was that she asked her kid to unload the dishwasher yeah. and her kid blew up at her. What she doesn't know is that this kid had been struggling all day with yeah. all of these other things and navigating all of that. Yeah. So really just understanding that teenagers are absolutely going through a lot. Yeah. Teenagers are struggling a lot. There's a lot of emotional development that's going on. They're having to navigate being kids, but also being adults, figuring out the rest of their future, because a lot of teenagers feel like they need to have their future figured out by the time they're 18. 100%. And by the way, most people change their majors, so don't worry (laughs) about it too much. Uh, My major went from sociology to liberal arts to social work, (laughs) and I changed my concentration a few times, because you figure out more about yourself as you grow. 100%. By the time you're 18, you've only lived 18 years. You're going to live a hell of a lot more than that, so things are going to change as you grow yeah so for parents to understand that that's all going on within a teenager's mind and it's not all about the parents a lot of times when kids come home they lash out at their parents the parent feels like well what did I do yeah but really it's because you're there it's because you actually are a safe person for that teenager to lash out to they know that you're not going to hurt them yeah they know that you are a safe person so them lashing out at you as much as it sucks it's actually a form of trust yeah that's actually a really good point I've never thought about it like that but um, I think that that can pretty much round end it. So do you have anything else you want to end it on or, um, mental health has a lot of stigma. Yeah. Be open about it. Um, yeah. you know, if you're struggling, be open about it. If your friend says I'm struggling, don't worry. It's okay. Yeah. Your friend gets to struggle. Yeah. Um, Especially when we talk suicide. People are afraid to talk about suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, people are afraid that if they're going to ask their friend who has had suicidal ideation in the past, Hey, are you still struggling with that? It's going to make that person commit suicide. Yeah. Well, it's not the way it works. Yeah. Um, if we take our own life, it's because we're struggling with mm-hmm. a hell of a lot more than one person asking us, hey, are you still suicidal? Yeah. So talk about these things. Talk about emotions. We're holding it all inside, and that leads to a lot more trauma. Yeah. So when you talk about it, when you get it out in the open, when you say, hey, you know what? I'm really struggling. Do you want to go write everything we're mad at on some plates and smash yeah. them? Yeah. Do you want to put our rage into a pinata and beat it with a stick? Yeah. Do you want to go, you know get some ice cream and just think about our feelings or cry yeah. along to music. It encourages that other person, encourages ourselves to talk about our feelings. Mm-hmm. When we struggle with mental health, it's often because we're not talking about it. Yeah. All right. That is very helpful. I'm so happy that you came on. You were so helpful. So thank you so much. I think we can end it here. All right. I just wanted to come back on and say, first of all, thank you to Courtney for coming on the podcast. It was Super great to talk to her. It was a super interesting conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Um, again, you guys can speak to me directly through my website, and that is going to be linked in the episode notes. And you can talk to me anonymously, submitting stories, advice, whatever you want. Again, that's anonymous, and it's through my website. And then I also have an Instagram, and it's thoughtswthoits underscore pod again thoughts w thoits t-h-o-i-t-s 
underscore pod. Again, thank you to Courtney Button for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to her. And I think I'm going to end it here. So thank you guys for listening.